I have a long history with the gospel this morning. When I was 12 or 13 and seeking to earn the Boy Scout God and Country Award, an award that at least does not exist under that name anymore, I had to memorize it. I can still recite it from memory from the Revised Standard Version RSV uh, translation. In seminary, when I took Greek, I was required to memorize it in Greek. And while I can no longer get through it in Greek without looking at the text, the opening has stuck in my memory. In arche en hologos, kai hologos en pros ton theon, kai theos en hologos. Just rolls right off the tongue. For those who grew up Anglo-Catholic, as I did, we remember that the prologue from John was read every Sunday at the end of the liturgy. While we were told when I was a boy in the 50s that this was because the prologue to John was uniquely important, it really was a way of paying the clergy twice for one Eucharist. It was the remnant of an archaic practice of paying the priest each time he read the gospel. So someone trying to maximize his earning opportunities got the idea of ending the liturgy with the prologue from John and got paid twice. It caught on and survived long after priests stopped being paid for reading the gospel. But the end result for me was that I became very familiar with this text. Finally, at least for the introduction to this sermon, the opening verses have caused problems with Judaism. The prologue clearly and intentionally opens with the same words as the Greek translation of Genesis in Archaeologos, in the beginning was the word. Jews today are careful to translate the Hebrew opening verses of Genesis as when God began to create, rather than in the beginning God created. The Hebrew, Bereshith bara Elohim, can be translated either way. It doesn't, it, it's, the, it's ambiguous, and you know, as I frequently say when I'm teaching Bible, all translations are lies. Um, only trust a translator who knows he's lying. Um, so the, the, the preposition in this case could be when or could be in. So when God began to be great, or in, in the beginning was God created, equally good. But for Jews, there's a point. They don't want to reference the gospel according to John. Let me begin with a verse further on in the gospel. It goes, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. The King James Version translates the Greek behind the word overcome as comprehends. I don't usually prefer the, Greek James, the King James translation, but in this case it says something to me. The darkness does not comprehend the light. He doesn't get it. It doesn't understand it. Darkness doesn't understand why the light persists. After all, the reasons for hopelessness, and hopelessness is often described as being in the dark, are huge. And those who feel hopeless don't comprehend how some of us could focus on the light. In the presence of so much evil as this year ends, we have another school shooting in Colorado We've just seen released thousands of pages about the shooting in, uh, in Newtown. We have a civil war in Christian South Sudan where Christians are fighting Christians. 
and the unspeakable tragedies daily present in many other countries in Africa, not to forget India, Pakistan, and on the front page of today's and every New York Times for the last many years, Afghanistan. How can anyone speak positively of the light? What kind of God permits so much tragedy? Unfortunately, posing the question of theodicy, which is what I'm talking about this morning, that is, the question of why does God permit evil, puts us in the box similar to answering the impossible question of when did you stop beating your wife? This is the first Sunday after Christmas. Most of us have gone straight from Christmas or Christmas Eve to today and not walked the paths of the holy days that intervene. Actually, most Episcopalians assume that today is really the official holiday of Low Sunday when only the most committed are expected to be in church. So you are all to be committed. <laughs> However, having made that observation, it is nevertheless true that for the most committed, the days between Wednesday and Sunday have not been spent in the liturgical calendar. The days following Christmas are the feasts of St. Stephen, the first martyr, St. John the Evangelist, and the Holy Innocents. St. Stephen and the Holy Innocents are companions of Christmas that point to the darker side of reality. St. Stephen was stoned to death. The Holy Innocents were the two-year-old boys we sang about in the opening hymn, slaughtered by Herod in his futile attempt to eliminate the Messiah. And putting the calendar together this way, the church is reminding us that Christmas is not simply about peace and goodwill. It is instead a contrary message to a world that is about death and selfishness. It is a triumph of light over darkness because the light exists and the darkness cannot comprehend, that is, overcome it. Many of us get into trouble this time of year because we think of Christmas simply as a time of joy, peace, and reconciliation. We feel guilty or out of sorts and contrarian if we don't share the seasonal feelings of joy, peace, and reconciliation. It can be those things, but for many it is a lonely time of appearing joyful in the midst of difficulty. There is hope, and that hope is incarnated in the helpless baby. Or as this morning's gospel maintains, that hope is incarnated in the word through which the world was created, that is, the word made flesh. John is making a radical statement about truth. In a time in which the world was ruled by Rome, in a time in which Roman rule was at best indifferent towards Christianity and Judaism, and at worst hostile to them because they did not worship the emperor, in a time much like today when there is overwhelming evidence that much is wrong with the world. In that world, John dares to say that the word has become flesh and dwells among us. John doesn't say that this enfleshed word has eliminated darkness. He doesn't make that claim. He simply says that this enfleshed word cannot be eliminated by darkness. Nothing we can do, nothing that can be done to us overcomes this enfleshed word, this light that has been sent into the world, it is the embodiment of hope. God's way of running the world, that is, theodicy, is not easily understood. 
If I were God, I would eliminate evil immediately. I would make it impossible to be evil. I would remove temptation. I would, in other words, make humanity something other than human. Were the possibility of evil removed, we would be less than human. We would have no free will. Our decisions would be meaningless because there would not exist the possibility of consequences. Our reality is that we were created by God to be in relationship with God and to have the possibility of surprising God and thereby, it seems, bring meaning to God. I've said this many times in many places, so it's not a radical statement from me or those who hear me regularly, but you may not have heard anybody say to you that your reason for existence is to bring meaning to God's life, that God likes to be surprised. We give him much to be surprised about. Last year, for 22 years, I, I worked with homeless people in Westport. So um, a group of shelter providers in Stanford decided that since I was retired and knew the homeless situation well, that I was the perfect person to preach at the homeless memorial servants um, and uh, at the Congregational Church and First Congregational in Stanford uh, a week or so before Christmas last year. Um, and so I said, okay, um, and I agreed to do it. And at that service, I said to, uh, that God created us to be in relationship with God and that we have the capacity to surprise God. And furthermore, that God never claims for God's self omnipotence, omnipresence, and omniscience. Now, we Episcopalians have a hymn which claims all of those things for God. Um, but the Bible doesn't. I've said that so often and for so many years that it no longer seems radical to me. However, in the, congreg this, in the congregation that weeknight in Stanford was at least one very conservative pastor. And he had the last word for the evening. He fought hard to find value in what I had said, but he was troubled and felt that he had to respond clearly that I had strayed from the truth. For him, now he wasn't surprised that Episcopalian would do that. I mean, we're, we're, we're surprising. I, when I was a graduate student at Princeton, I was teaching Hebrew to Presbyterians, and it offended them that an Episcopalian was teaching them Hebrew. Um, for him, the truth is that God is all-powerful and that nothing happens in God's creation without God willing it. God is all-powerful, nothing happens by mistake. That means that God causes, or at least permits, cancer, homelessness, the slaughter of innocents, and on and on. That is not the God I believe in, nor is it the God I find revealed in Scripture. The prologue to John is clear that the darkness exists independent of God, and the wonder is not that it exists, but that it does not extinguish the light. For most of us, this is a wonderful and joyous time of year. We reach out to family and friends. We have glorious celebrations of Christmas, carols, pageantry, and memorable times. We anticipate Christmas with eagerness and joy. But some of us wonder how we can celebrate Christmas when the feeling is not in us. We act as if we are required to produce from within ourselves some feeling that we may not have. We are not. 
Christmas is simply the annual reminder that no matter the darkness that surrounds us, it will not overcome the light. It will still be dark. Problems will still pertain. But we are not alone, we are not helpless, we need not be hopeless because the light has come into the world to witness to us that there is a reality which is not defined by darkness. How do we live in the light? We live by being liturgical. We celebrate that we are not alone. No obstacle, no failure, no achievement, no success will separate us from the love of God. Christianity is not an insipid thing of comfort only to us when we are living either in fear of a vengeful God or in the certainty that we are one of God's elect. Christianity is much more textured. Christianity is about realizing that God is with us whether we feel it or not. When we suffer, God suffers with us. When we rejoice, God rejoices with us. I know that I would prefer the God in suffering, especially my suffering, but were God to do so, then God would also be ending my individuality. God prizes me as a unique part of God's creation, and God prizes you as a unique part of God's creation. The constant theme in my preaching in recent years is that God values us for who we are in independence from God. That makes life interesting for God. <coughs> in return, God promises never to abandon us even when we abandon God. God's love is always there, or as John would say, from the creation we have been intended to be the object of God's love and to find contentment in returning that love. Darkness does not comprehend this. Christmas is not over. It runs at least until Sunday next, so you have a lot of time to enjoy it. Perhaps you will be intrigued enough to try morning prayer at home. If so, please talk with me afterwards and I'll be glad to help you get started. Perhaps you will find the light that is eluding you, or perhaps you can bear witness to the light you have found and bring it to someone else. Ultimately, it is all about relationships. The message of Christmas this morning is that your foundational relationship is based on light that no darkness can overcome. Merry Christmas.